0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petrobras and host of the Petrobras Podcast. This is episode 97 of the Petrobras Podcast. This is the presentation that I gave to the Denver Association of Petroleum Landmen. This was recorded on October 12, 2023. It is still exceptionally timely, and it is really a completely uh, a complete tour around the world, starting with the, the atrocities of the Israeli Hamas War um, that took place on, on October 7th, um, and then really what's going on within the geopolitical volatility, what happened with oil prices um, and what's going on with the global economy and all the way back to U.S. shale. Now, since the time of recording right now, tonight is November 8th, 2023, Wednesday, and we are seeing oil prices um, have come off a cliff from that $87 that we saw on October 12th. So we are, at, we are looking at $75 a barrel, 75 and change right now. Brent is below um, $80 a barrel, and that is despite this week um, OPEC coming out and, or sorry, the Saudis coming out and um, reiterating that they were going to keep with their supply cuts of 9 million barrels per day. So a lot has happened since this war broke out, but what is very clear is that we have two ongoing hot wars, one in the Middle East um, that could expand and one in Ukraine that has been ongoing for... Will be two years um, next February, and uh, oil prices are really not baking this geopolitical risk premium, and. If they are breaking into geopolitical screaming, it's telling us that demand is not nearly where people thought it to be. So we we are seeing weak demand come out of China. I have been uh, talking on this podcast for quite some time that I really don't believe the demand data out of China is real. I don't think that oil demand in China is 17 million barrels a day or has been 17 million barrels a day over the course of 2023. Um, I think you're going to hear that in the context of this presentation. I really uh, appreciate you guys taking a listen. I think you're going to love it. Um, I really appreciate the Denver Association of Petroleum Landmen inviting me back. Um, it is always a, it's a really fun talk. It was really, really well received. Um, but with that last week, the, the podcast that, or last episode, episode 96 with Paul Tice, it's on ESG. It is a phenomenal episode. The reviews have been really, really great. Uh, he was a fantastic guest, incredible conversation. And, um, the next episode that we'll be dropping episode 98 is going to be with Tad True, um, with, uh, Bridger Belfouche Pipelines and True Companies. It is one of, One of the best podcasts I've recorded in a really long time. Um, He's extremely candid. He's very funny. um, And it's just a really good candid conversation on the Rockies, on North Dakota, on the Powder River from a midstream perspective and for somebody who is from Wyoming sitting in Casper, Wyoming. So with that being said, I I look forward to you guys taking a listen. um, Look forward to talking to you soon um, and talk to you soon, folks. Bye.
1: Well, up next, we are honored and excited to be joined by Trisha Curtis. Trisha Curtis is the president and CEO of PetroNerds. She founded the company in 2015 and began working full-time at PetroNerds in January of 2016. She was formerly the Director of Research Upstream and and Midstream um, at the Energy Policy Research Foundation in Washington, DC. Since 2010, she has led extensive research efforts and major consulting projects and has authored several, several reports on the North American upstream and midstream markets. She was also the manager for strategy and analytics at Andrew's Exploration in Denver, Colorado. At PetroNerds, Ms. Curtis leads research and consulting services. She's a macro, um, oops, sorry, um, she's a macro economist with expertise in U.S. shale markets. She's globally recognized for her knowledge of U.S. shale and has been asked to speak and present at several forums including OPEC in Vienna, Austria, in Bahrain and in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Stanford University, Chatham House, Oxford University, Denver University, and Colorado School of Mines. She's also host of the Petro Nerds podcast. Please help me welcome back, Trisha Curtis.
0: Well, thank you guys so much. It is awesome to be back. Um, and I have to say, last year was super fun. We had a much smaller room, if I remember, and everybody was tightly packed in. There was a lot of like post-COVID pent up, everybody being Really pumped um, and the feedback was really nice and I was extremely humbled um, with the really positive feedback and then asking to come back. So honored to be here today and it's funny because I, my expertise and background, I am third generation oil and gas and it is in U.S. shale. Um, but we are gonna spend a lot, of, a lot of time today talking about geopolitics and the global oil market and hopefully we'll have time to close with U.S. shale. I've been given, um, I'm not gonna tell you how much time, I've been given an hour I'm gonna speed through things pretty fast, and if I didn't hit on it, that's totally okay. When you ask questions, ask hard ones, ask fastballs, and if I didn't touch on it, um, it's not because I had to delete a lot of slides. I won't tell you how many slides, because that might overwhelm you, um, but we're gonna go through a lot of information, and, and I will say that if I had to do this presentation you know, two weeks ago, I had slides kinda of ready, and that all went out the window within a week, um, and that's because the world has changed pretty quickly. So what I would like to go through today, um, and if you haven't listened to the podcast, please do because I go through a lot of this stuff. I think repetition is a big deal and I you know, I sort of reiterate a lot of stuff and really drill stuff home and I, I've had some awesome guests lately. Um, but we're gonna talk about geopolitics and the the ongoing war right now in Israel and the the war in Ukraine and all kinds of geopolitical volatility. Um, We're gonna talk about cost and relationships and sort of reality, and there's a lot of complexities when it comes to multiple wars around the world, how much the US has to fund this, the amount of debt that we have, the level of interest rates that we have, and that we um, now have interest payments that are more than what our actual military spending is. So this is where things start getting really tricky, really fast, um, we'll talk about oil prices and inflation. We got an inflation read today. Lo and behold, I was updating. We had inflation read today. We also had um, IEA's report come out as well as OPEC. We'll talk about Saudi Arabia a little bit. OPEC, China. Uh, naturally, we have to talk about China because I like to talk about China. Um, ESG education. We'll do a little bit of that. That's really just talking about China and um, making people uncomfortable that are very pro wind and solar because I am definitely not. Um, and I'll explain why. And then we'll close with talking about the U.S. economy, which is not nearly as resilient as many think. Um, and that looming recession will eventually happen. Um, I think the longer it goes out, the worse it might be. Um, but knowledge is power, so don't freak out. And then we'll close with a very positive story on the on the very, very resilient U.S. shale, which is at 12.9 million barrels a day and nearing that record high of 13 million barrels a day. So. The atrocities in Israel, I I cannot understate them. Um, You know, if you're following market coverage, whether it's Bloomberg or CNBC or FT or anything, a lot of it's sort of putting it in the context of, this is pretty isolated, this is in the Middle East, you know, it's probably gonna be short, and if it extends, then we'll worry about it if it gets beyond that. it probably is not gonna be very short. It was really, really devastating. It was very, very bad. Um, if you're following deep Israeli coverage, it was horrific. Um, and I say this because it's important to say it. I was going through podcasts on even a China podcast and somebody was even talking about beheading of babies that happened last Saturday. So 1, 000, over 1,000 people were killed in Israel um, and then they have committed, You know, they turned back, so there's been over 2,000 deaths both on the Israeli and Palestinian side. It's horrible, um, but it's really serious because Israel is this little strip of land in here And so we have all these complexities in the relationship balance that Israel has. Israel has relationships with China. Um, Iran has a close relationship with China. Russia has a close relationship with Iran. Uh, China has a close relationship with Russia. You can see how quickly this starts getting involved, and you know we saw President Biden being flanked by Kamala Harris and Blinken um, just a couple of days ago. And I would say Blinken did look a little bit nervous when Biden went off—you know, he went off script and he started talking about Israel. And he was very sincere. And I criticized Biden plenty, but he was very sincere in talking about this and saying we're behind Israel. Blinken probably was a little bit nervous in the extent of that because you know if we—and there's been warnings to Iran because if Iran gets involved in us, this, this this implodes. Iran is involved in this because Iran directly backs Hamas. So we can talk about, you know, it's a proxy war. It doesn't matter. That's where they get their money. So Iran gives the money to Hamas. Hamas does these atrocities. That's just how it is. Um, Much more complex, but we also have to take out off of our, our rational Western lens where we don't want war at any cost. You know, we'll just avoid it no matter what. We'll give the weapons, but we want to touch it. This is an area that is no, and this is a territory and, and all of the Middle East that is, is prone to war and in, in volatility and angst and this is, this is something that they take seriously and this is not going away. And these atrocities in the context of a thousand people versus the nine million population of Israel, this is the biggest thing they've seen since the Holocaust um, and they're not going to take this lying down. So if you think this is going away in two weeks, you're probably wrong. Um, so the externalities and the impacts of this with all these other countries involved is a big deal. Right before this war, we saw oil prices run up like crazy, then we saw them come down like crazy. Lots of algorithmic crazy volatility in oil prices that we've seen. Um, those oil prices were, were running up, we were short supply, Saudi Arabia had pulled off barrels off the market, Russia said they might pull off some barrels on the market. and then. Oil prices came down like, like crazy, and that's because um, there were a lot of fears about Chinese demand and the Chinese economy, and there were increasing fears about the US economy. So oil prices come down really fast, and then what something was baked in that, or people saying oil prices were coming down before this war happened on Friday, was that the Saudis were gonna make a deal with the US, and we, they want nuclear for so-called power. I gotta say, nobody in the Middle East just wants nuclear for power. Yes, it might be nice for power. For, for Saudi Arabia, they could be exporting more oil if they weren't burning a million barrels a day in the summer of crude for power. So it makes sense, but nobody in the Middle East just wants um, nuclear for just power generation. That's just not a thing. Um, so, but they said basically there was a hint that the Saudis might tell our administration that they might throw another million barrels a day back on the market if they were to get this deal. Obviously, the, the world changed dramatically, but Saudi Arabia is involved in this too. So, And then the Strait of Hormuz is over here, and that's where 20 million barrels a day do go through the Strait of Hormuz. Interestingly enough, we're not seeing kind of the oil price premium right now on oil prices. Um, you're not allowed to share any of these slides or screen capture this. I really shouldn't be showing this one, but I am because um, I couldn't find a good Iranian slide. So this is Iranian crude production, and this is really important to point out is that Iran is under sanctions under this administration they have just gone gangbusters in producing crude and exporting crude because they knew this administration wanted to cut a deal with them and they knew that this administration was going to go lenient on them so this administration as you know pro-israel as they are right now they have not penalized Iran under existing sanctions and Iran is producing this says 3.2 million barrels a day but I've seen as high as 3.6 3.8 million barrels a day they're sending nearly probably over 2 million barrels a day are going to exclusively to China. So there's a sweetheart deal with China. China is the only buyer of this crude, probably North Korea takes some too. And this is direct, so China's directly funding and helping Iran be able to do a lot of stuff it's doing, including wars like this in Israel. You can see how complicated this gets and where the money is going. We just cut a deal with Iran. We, We did a prisoner swap. We gave them $6 billion. They haven't technically had that. Now that $6 billion is for humanitarian aid. However, it's a big piggy bank, right? You put money in, you put money out. Iran can use that money for humanitarian aid, which frees up more money that they can just go spend on Hamas and do other stuff. Um, These are just realities. They are uncomfortable to talk about, but they're very, very real. So if we sanction, if if we enforce existing sanctions, Crude could come off the market, and that would be, mean higher order prices. Now, this is where the administration is probably looking to Saudi and saying, please, you know, if we sanction Iran, can you please add those barrels back? And the Saudis will say, well, the price will probably be the same, so we know maybe why not. Um, and then we have the Russians involved in this too. Nobody's really talking about Russia right now. Nobody's really talking about China right now, because this is a very news-driven cycle, and we're sort of focused on this. And then today, you wouldn't even know this is happening because everybody's focused on the inflation read. Um, we did there's probably more but 22 confirmed um citizens of you American citizens are dead almost everyone had citizens you know China's has citizens in in Israel so this had a pretty wide-ranging impact there's also hostages there's over uh, probably over 100 hostages that's a really big story um and a big you know elongated evolving story obviously Hamas wants to exchange those hostages and get the most in um extracted um Turkey another country involved here um Mm, you know technically in Europe but Turkey basically came out and was very pro-Palestinian in this and and really said some, some negative things about Israel so we can see they're clearly showing their cards really quickly where they land and China I mean, nobody should be surprised what China said. China didn't really say much, and that really was made the Israelis quite sad, is that China didn't condemn this. Um, China is is politically pro-Palestinian, so they weren't gonna condemn this, um, but they do have investments with Israel, uh, and that's just what China does. Um, if you think China is your friend, they're never your friend. This is the game that they play. So this is kind of a wake-up call to the Israelis and the entire world, is that this is, uh, China's kind of like that uncomfortable relationship that you have with, you know, the it's like, um, 10 things I hate, not 10 things I hate about you, or he just doesn't, he's just not that into you. Um, that's basically China. And we always try to just, you know, do this thing. So um, he's just not that into you, that's reality. So laying out the geopolitical map, we already sort of did this. We are bringing an aircraft carrier, might bring another one. We basically took one into the Mediterranean Sea. We're probably bringing one in a little closer. That's basically to just tell Iran, don't do anything. That's a pretty serious thing. I mean, this is, you can see, I was Paul Tudor who said last week, you know, geopolitical volatility is at its high, high, at a height. It is at a height. We, we have never probably seen this type of, all these type of little factors going on in the world and we haven't even talked about China and Taiwan and you know Indian demand and Indians, India's role between Russia and China and the ongoing war with, within Ukraine that's nearly two years on, has no end in sight. Um, meaning funding, this is, gets, you have a lot of, You have a lot of hot spots and you have a lot of when something goes on the middle east like this it can extend um so i think the market it's interesting i mean oil prices are just not baking in this premium now and that could be that we have a lot of we have some real demand issues which we were saying a couple weeks ago this is an old slide i say that because um, i just made this really simple and that's that very simplistically pre this war in Israel, you know, China is getting crude oil, they're getting natural gas at a massive distance. They're getting over 2.5 million barrels a day of crude oil at a discount from Russia. They're getting coal, they're getting natural gas. They're, they were, last summer, exporting some of that natural gas via LNG back to Europe. Europe is, still getting a, Europe is still getting liquefied natural gas from Russia, as we speak. Um, and then China is sending money and technology and weapons. People say they're not. They definitely are, directly, indirectly, to Russia. So they're helping this war, right? So if you want to look to a country that is not helping anyone right now, it is most definitely China, because they're they're funding half of this stuff. And then we have to fund the other side of it. And then we have Europe in the middle of this that's just being like, we'll just take all your batteries and all your wind turbines and all your solar panels at, I mean, we're talking 140% increase increases in solar panel purchases from China over the course of the war in Ukraine. That helps China too. Um, who cares if they're made with forced labor? Who cares the human rights abuses? Who cares if they're completely subsidized coal and they don't pay people to make them and then they flood the market with them? Apparently, no one cares on the humanitarian rights side, but we care from an ESG standpoint. Um, and that's why I call BS on the ESG. So, But that, this is a big problem in terms of this trading cycle that we have. Um, and also Germany has huge investments with, the German relationship with China is extensive. So is fr- France. Um, we saw that play out at the end of last year. But German autos, it's very tight, right? They, uh, they import from China and they also export to China. Um, and so there's a lot of complexities there. Ongoing war in Ukraine, that's when it started. That's what the map looked like. That's what it looks like today. It's not going anywhere. Um, Putin is dig- has dug his heels in. The point of this, you know, people don't want to talk about this either. But war fatigue is a really big deal because wars are costly, and you know we are the single biggest um, we are the single biggest supplier for money for this war. Um, and I say this because I am critical of Europe has to put their money where their mouth is and they have to do this too. And it's not that we shouldn't be doing this. I'm not not saying that at all, but you have to have this uncomfortable conversation because now we have very high debt levels in America and we have very high interest rates and we have inflation and we partly have inflation because we have really high spending across the board and we have a deficit of $2 trillion because we're spending like drunken sailors in Congress and the White House. this, um, this is a problem because our debt is now about a trillion, or our interest payments on our debt is about a trillion dollars and our military spending is, ju- is less than a trillion dollars. So when we have more wars, we're going to have to fund this and then that starts getting people anxious about US treasuries and whether or not they should buy them. So this is just a reality. You're gonna have to, somebody's going to have to come up with the money and we do need to be careful about where, how that money is being spent, where it's going and that we're actually achieving something with that. And right now that did not get passed On the October 1st uh, pass that we did, the government did not get shut down on October 1st. It could in November because that was kicked out 45 days, but Ukrainian aid was not included in that. Um, So that's a big question mark about that. Um, natural gas, I showed this to you last year. Um, this is the gap. This is updated for 2022. There's still a big gap between um, consumption of natural gas in Europe and production of natural gas. They did reduce their consumption a little bit. You can see from 55 BCF a day to 48 BCF a day in Europe. That's not necessarily a positive. They did, you know, we are, that came from manufacturing, that came from these countries actually having to dwindle down their usage of natural gas. Um, and then they increased output by a, a single BCF a day. Um, and this is, this is uh, just what the story is. And again, Russia doesn't really care about this. People say, well, Russia lost a lot of money because they, you know, they are no longer sending this 18 BCF a day via pipeline to Europe. They weren't making all their money in gas, they were making it in oil, and they're still making it in oil. So natural gas, the weather really did save Europe last year. We hear a lot about the storage volumes in Europe, that they're doing great, and they have all this gas. They don't have the same kind of storage we do. We will see how this winter plays out. We are already seeing gas prices go up a little, and we were seeing that for we were seeing that pre this w- this war. Um, but we're gonna we're seeing that accelerate a little bit. So you're seeing net gas prices in the U.S. come up. You're seeing um, you're seeing Dutch TTF go up to 14. You're seeing future prices up as well. That all has an impact on on their economies, which are already going into recession. Um, this incredible oil price volatility, which we've already talked about in this run up and this run down. Um, I put these lines in here, this was from IEA this morning, and it is interesting, this is the the first page of IEA's report that everybody pays a lot of money for today is, evidence of demand destruction is appearing with preliminary September data showing that U.S. gasoline consumption fell to two decade lows. And if you watch the market, you feel the whipsaw all the time because it's, we're doing great, the consumer's doing great, no, the consumer's doing bad, no, the consumer's doing great. This is real, um, you, can, you do see in the data, I think that we had a lot of people still driving, still spending. I'm gonna talk about you know, all that sort of post-COVID lag, the work from home, the people still driving. Yes, people went to concerts. Yes, people were paying for stuff. This is kind of the last hurrah. They are putting this stuff on credit cards and gasoline prices when they went up did slow people down. This has happened long enough and inflation has been here, and it's been high enough, and it's been long enough that people are pulling back on spending. You hear it from restoration hardware, you hear it from the high end, and you hear all the way to the low end. And when high end people are not spending and low end people are not spending, you know you have a real problem because that's their assessment of the economy, and they just don't have the money. Um, Russian oil export revenues also surged uh, because they recovered. The price cap is no longer in existence uh, because oil prices are high. You can see the vehicle miles traveled. I don't put, didn't show you product demand here, but this is just gasoline demand in yellow. And you can see it never, it has not recovered to its pre-COVID high. Um, Yes, we're driving, but we're not driving to work. We're not driving to and from work. And so we're driving a lot, but it's still changed. And the vehicle miles traveled still hasn't come back to that pre-COVID high either. So yes, lots of driving, lots of driving everywhere, but people are flying and they just don't have this commute. The impacts to this are, are more than people expect. There's a huge commercial real estate problem that's looming. Um, It's gonna take a couple years for that to get into the system and for it to work its way out and for us to really see the pain. But commercial real estate is offices, is downtowns where you don't see a lot of people. You guys probably experienced it now where some of you are able to work from home a few days a week. Um, When you have that work from home Mondays and Fridays, a lot of people do traveling on Mondays and Fridays. That's inherently inflationary. You see it in in, in the price for hotels, you see it in the price for flights. Um, And you also have an indirect impact on these businesses that are around your downtowns. When you are not working at your office, you're not going to the local coffee shop. You're not going to the local shop. You're not going to the restaurant. And they have been devastated. You can go to Washington DC and you will see up front and center how the huge, huge impact on commercial real estate. Um, Switching gears real quick, just thinking about demand and where we we need to be thinking about a looming recession and what's going on. You can see China and India, you know, demand for oil is 5 million barrels per day for India. It's, you know, last year was 14 and change for for, um, China. You know, the real growth, everybody keeps saying, has been China this year. IEA showed today it was nearing 17 million barrels a day. I have a really, really hard time with that, knowing the Chinese economy is as poor as it is. I think a lot of that stockpiling and there's just some fudging of the numbers, it seems very, very excessive. And if it's that high, we must have some severe weakness in the rest of the world for oil prices to be where they're at, given all this geopolitical angst. Um, but you, I also put this up here so you guys can see, coal consumption, <laughs> it's, it's China. Um, and India and we're a fraction of that and we're still one of the largest coal consumers. Now to our our oil and gas production. So, sorry, that's 12.9 million barrels a day, not 99, but we are at 12.9 million barrels a day for oil. You know, (laughs) we say this a lot, but I think just studying production and just going back and when we think about ESG, when we think about all this push on the energy transition, when we think about all this geopolitical volatility, the reason we were able to sanction Venezuela and, and Iran during the Obama administration is because we were driving up crude oil production. And because we, this is the first time, we are at 5 million barrels a day and now we're at 13 million barrels a day. We are the largest single um, production, in, the biggest single addition for supplies in the world by far in the past 15 years. Um, and we are producing well, well north of Russia, well north of Saudi Arabia. We're the largest oil and gas produced in the world, 124 BCF a day of gas. Um, So if we see Iran this is the OPEC figures today so they say three million barrels a day we know that's not true that's probably three and a half or between three and four and Saudi Arabia is at nine million barrels a day that is about accurate for them Um, so that's the story which we already talked about these numbers for Russia keep getting revised up so Russia keeps saying we'll we'll do output cuts but then they don't and so Russian production and Russian exports have been incredibly and remarkably resilient this is this is Help fund their war and help their ability to just stay the course. Um, and they, their economy has not been de- as devastated as many people think it has. Yes, it's been hurt dramatically, um, but they're they're humming along. Now, Russian supply. So you can just see those are Russian exports. They really haven't dropped off massively. That black line um, is their revenue. Also hasn't dropped off nearly as massively. So those sanctions we all had, they're just not working. Um, and then China consumption and production. China produces about 4.5 million barrels a day of crude oil and everything else they have to import. So, as I said before, they're taking 2.5 million barrels a day from Russia, they're getting over 2.5 million barrels a day, probably 2 million barrels a day from Iran, and they're getting 2 million barrels a day from Saudi. That's the bulk of it. So you wanna talk about what's gonna go on in the Middle East and where China's gonna land, it's not gonna be on our side. Um, The story, if we're talking ESG, if we're talking energy transition, which is really about climate, you know, it, it truly is all for naught. Because that's China's gas. If China really wanted to change their their CO2 emission output, they would be consuming a lot more natural gas. They don't consume a lot of natural gas. They consume about 35 BCF a day because they don't have a lot of natural gas. And that just wouldn't be a smart energy security play for them. So they produce a little, they import a little, but they don't consume a lot. We, We consume about 95 or we consume about 80 to 90 BCF a day. The coal consumption and production—they're they're basically completely resilient in coal consumption and production. They produce as much as they consume, and they consume a lot. And this is the backbone of their economy. It's the backbone of their industries. It's the backbone of their power generation. Um, it's what they make everything from cell phones to solar panels to ammunition with. And the risks in China cannot be underscored enough. They're massive, from all the crackdowns on the financial side to, you know, um, if you're a government employee going over there. I mean, it. People aren't getting arrested every day. It's not like that. You hear a lot of business people going over there, and it looks good. But if you're talking to people who are on the ground, they'll tell you that um, the economic sentiment, the negativity, is palpable. Um, and we know the data is ridiculously poor, uh, but the GDP is going on a downward trajectory. It's. Pro- you know, you could even question whether it's positive at all, um, and the housing prices, the reason their property sector matters so much is that, you know, where I have a hard time believing there are 17 million barrels a day of demand is that their property sector is crap. We know they're not building new homes. We know the homes are empty, and we know the sale prices are a mess, and we know they're covering all this up, and that's about 33% of their economy. So I just don't, I just have a hard time with, with the property side. So switching gears on ESG, look, we had the perfect storm for oil and gas. I think I said this last year. You have, you know, years of poor returns. You have COVID. You've got negative oil prices. You've got this rise, this anti-oil and gas movement that really just kind of came in there during COVID um, and, you know, took the reins. And you've got the loss of the generalist investor, loss of the retail investor because of all those poor returns and because of this anti-sentiment. You have a massively anti-domestic oil and gas administration who just doesn't, will not talk about the U.S. producing lots of of lots of domestic crude oil and natural gas and then you just have all this ESG and investor pressure coupled on top of that Um, you have executive pay tied to ESG metrics that's a big problem Um, and you have a reluctance in the industry to lead and to talk about oil and gas instead and that's changing a little bit I did I did like the the call with Darren Woods and Scott Sheffield yesterday with regards to the the merger Um, but really everybody's still talking about net zero in the transition and increasingly that merger has been, if you're watching the market, the coverage has been in the context of the transition. The coverage has been, you know, oh, I guess we need oil for a little while, so this makes sense. Um, and you know, I think Darren Woods did a really good job explaining that, you know, what, why they purchased this and what they're doing. And full disclosure, I have a tiny bit of stock in Exxon and, and, uh, and Pioneer. I don't sell, I just buy and hold, uh, which was forever ago when I lost money. So this is not a money-making strategy for me. Um, so US net power generation, the reason this matters on the ESG front and also you're starting to hear people get a little bit anxious about US power. This is the reason partly why net gas prices going up a little is that we have shoved a lot of wind and a lot of solar into our grids. And when those aren't working, so we had a little hotter than expected October and a hotter than expected September. And so when it's hot, uh, the the wind doesn't blow. And so we had some issues on the wind side, but when you shove all those into the grid, this is our total net power generation. You can see it really hasn't changed. And you can see, yes, we dropped coal massively in purple. We've increased natural gas like crazy. And I will say, one of the biggest reasons we've even been able to add that wind and solar, which a lot of it is in Texas, is because you have so much natural gas in Texas. So you have a backup baseload power it doesn't work in places where you don't have that backup baseload power you see that in china when they have a lot of wind and solar and it's not actually connected to the grid sometimes it is it's a backup for for china when they add all that wind and solar like crazy this is to simply offset some coal that they're going to use but it's not done efficiently and that's not the re they're not doing it for emissions they are doing it uh, for energy security Um, and it's not even that good for energy security Um, and they make it and it's really cheap so why not use it Um, and then we buy it so truly understanding net zero, and if somebody wants to shout at me just how much time I have left on my hour, I'd appreciate it because I've I passed up my thing. So understanding net zero, um, and this is why it's really, really important. So when all these oil companies say, I heart net zero, and we're doing net zero, and we got net zero emissions, they're talking about their scope one and scope two emissions. They're not talking about what the IEA is talking about, which is where all this came from. And that is they, you know, in 2030, you will have, um, you By 2030, you will have to have a you will take demand from current levels of over 100 million barrels a day to 75 million barrels a day. So, over 25 million barrel a day demand drop, about 27 million barrels a day demand drop between now and 2030. It's not going to happen. It's, it can't happen. It would devastate the world, and we would all be eating mung beans and living in caves. And we, I mean, we, you wouldn't be driving. You wouldn't be doing anything. You wouldn't be able to get on a plane. So it's not going to happen. But the problem is that's what net zero is. And so the reality of you can be pro-oil and gas. You can be anti-oil and gas. It's not happening. Um, but that's what everything's hell bent on. And then you know we just have to realize that when we're talking about this. So. The, opposite, the other side of that is shoving all the wind and solar into the grid for IEA, that's the answer. Um, so the G7, this is so important in the context, I think, when I talk about ESG, when I talk about folks who are you know, on the gas side and they're saying, OK, if we can just tell everybody coal is bad, natural gas will win the day because natural gas has lower emissions. It does have lower emissions, but look, everybody stabbed the knife in the back of coal, and then they're coming after natural gas. It's the same people that did that. So Bloomberg has a big philanthropic entity that is anti-coal. He put another $500 million to kill every coal-fired power plant in America, which is just devastating to domestic domestic jobs, domestic energy security, does absolutely nothing for CO2 emissions in America. Just for perspective, Colorado is 0.3% of global CO2 emissions. So we could all just go away. We could we go to zero. We could wipe Colorado off the planet and we would not be a drop in the bucket of global CO2 emissions. And that is what this whole thing about climate, energy transition, ESG, you name it, that's what it's about. So if we're not doing anything, we need to start talking about it, and we need to start educating, because what it's doing is it's killing this business, it's killing jobs, and it's, it's hurting our, our energy security, our national security, and our economic well-being, and what we have. China has coal, and they make stuff with it. We have natural gas, and we can make stuff with it, and that's what we need to be doing, and that's what keeps us prosperous. It's why we don't have the same issues as a lot of other Countries, and that's what they're going to the G7 was going after. The G7 basically said, if appropriate, you can invest in natural gas, which is insane because everybody's needing it, and that's why you see companies like Conoco, companies like Liberty, everybody investing in natural gas like crazy because they know this is the solution. Um, Fatigue roll. This report's going to come out uh, on the twenty-fourth of this month. This is the big IEA World Energy Outlook. Apparently, this is going to say that we are definitely peaking. By 2030, all for coal, oil, and gas were peaking. Now, everybody said this in 2019, in 2020, during COVID, they said 2019 was the peak. Well, clearly they were wrong, and we are now well above that peak, but now we're 100% gonna peak. He obviously got some pushback on that. Um, This is CO2 emissions, just so you can see. That's global on the left. Um, That's China in red. Um, So you can see the direction they're going. You can see the US, we're we're right below China there. We're trending down, we're trending down because We've offset, we put a lot of natural gas into our grid. That's the direction we're going. Europe is trying, Europe is killing themselves to reduce their emissions. They're not gonna change the planet by by not, I mean, they're not, they're not actually changing the course and trajectory of the world, they think they are, and India's going up. So the US and the West, we're all killing ourselves. We are these democratic countries with with rule of law, with institutions, with values, with norms, and we don't, we, we actually value human rights. And so when we produce a barrel of oil and gas, it's epic. And when other countries produce it, it's not. So, and this administration is okay buying, is okay with Iran sending crude to China, is okay with Russia sending it everywhere, is okay. Europe is basically just signed deals with, um, they just signed deals with Qatar. Qatar has some human rights abuses as well, but they're not gonna sign long-term LNG deals with us because our molecules are just not that green and that's a problem. So that's ESG for you when we're trying to measure our, our emissions and we're trying to push back on this, you know, it's not okay that, that Europe is signing long-term contracts with the Middle East, but they're not signing long-term contracts with us when we have a cleaner and more ethically sourced uh, molecule. Um, that's global power generation by fuel. That black is coal. That's just, that's where you're going. The reason this is important is not to show how much coal and how much natural gas. The reason is to show that it's going up. Right? You just need more energy. And I know a lot of people say this, but you just do. You just need more energy over time. And frankly, you actually need more energy. When you add that green bit and you add that wind and solar, we probably wouldn't need as much of energy as we added if we didn't have all that, because it's extremely inefficient. And then you have places like the UK, that don't, they, you have to use your natural gas power facilities efficiently. Um, to make them make sense to make them actually work but when you just pull them on peak times when your wind isn't blowing and your, and your sun's not shining you lose that efficiency and then you actually have to use more so i would wager that you know it, it, it truly is all for naught because all that green isn't actually you're not using it all the time you're certainly not using it in china which is where the bulk of that is at um, that's global oil and gas consumption again that trajectory is up it dipped with covid um, that's coal consumption, its production is up significantly, um, and even coal consumption is up. Not, it's not even flatten, flattening, so you know, the IEA is outside their mind and thinking they're going to curb um, Chinese coal consumption. And gas consumption and production is one direction, it's just up. It's, four, it's a 400 BCF a day global market. We are producing gross withdrawals 124 billion cubic feet per day. We could change the world in a heartbeat with our natural gas. But we have to be proactive, we we have to build a pipeline and we have to talk about this. Now, um, again, I don't know where I'm at in time. Um, Here's a story with China and solar and the human rights abuses. Um, China competes in two ways with cheap coal and and massive subsidies and very cheap labor, that's a lot of it is forced. you have to do a lot of research. I don't take, I go to primary resources. So when I'm showing you this stuff, I might be glossing it over, but it's not that I haven't done my research. This is a chart from the IEA, which they don't talk anything about forced labor, but they will tell you about cheap coal. And you can see the province of Xinjiang there in that tall thing and the cost of power. And the reason their solar panels are so cheap to make is that in the province of Xinjiang, it's 100% coal-fired power generation. They have a ton of coal there. It's very cheap and it's abundant. You need. Heat and you need industry and, and power to process rare earth minerals, to, um, do, which is dirty and extractive, and you have to take off the uranium and you have to take off the thor- thorium. When you're refining, when you're doing every, any heavy industry thing, a lot of that's getting pushed in the province of Xinjiang, partly because they have cheap coal, also because they have labor that's really really cheap. And the way you compete with the world, you know, you they stole the technology for solar panels from China and then they made it in the province of Xinjiang, and then they used forced labor and cheap coal, they dropped the price out, and then they flooded the market with it, and they put the solar manufacturer in Germany out of business, along with a lot of others. So when we talk about solar, almost all that's still coming from, even from the beginning is coming from is coming from China, which is coming from Xinjiang. That's a map, that's China's map That's what, um, of Xinjiang. Complete surveillance, complete, um, I mean, no one can even see what's going on there, so it makes sense why you'd be doing a lot of that. And then you know we don't have to get into this, but you know they control the value chain for it's not just solar panels, it is electric cars, it is the whole components of the battery, and it is it's also wind turbines. So the entire value chain for so-called clean tech is controlled by China, and a lot of that is increasingly, including electric vehicles and batteries, is produced in the province of Xinjiang, partly um, because it's so you have the power and you have the very cheap labor. Um, All that red is China. So when I say this energy transition is not going to go. It's not gonna even happen the way people think it's gonna happen because all those batteries are coming from China and we already have issues with China and we haven't even had a hot war. Um, That's the trade with China. Chinese EV exports are are just surging because they're very good at this and they're sending a lot of those to Europe. Um, Europe has bottled these solar panels so Europe's in a real pickle with China. Um, That's US power generation, that's Chinese power generation. China's is double. We uh, we don't even have a thousand terawatt hours of coal-fired power generation. China added over 1,000 terawatt hours of coal-fired power, power generation in 2021 alone. So when you're talking about CO2 emissions, it, we're, we have to change the, the dialogue because this is, it's about China, and unless you're going to change them, then we need to start talking about um, making our country uh, a little more, we need to start talking about energy security um, and being more boisterous about that and stop pacifying everyone on the issue stuff. Um, the U.S. economy... We have fiscal monetary lags, they're massive. Um, We have US debt levels, which we talked about high interest rates. We have this war, Um, entitlement programs are a big deal. It's very uncomfortable to talk about, but it's really important. So social security is one of them. Welfare is another one. Welfare spending went uh, went up significantly during COVID and it hasn't come down and food food stamps as well, which has also contributed, that's went up massively, went from 60 million or 60 billion to 160 billion. um, And that's inflationary. All the spending is inflationary. We have a declining average hourly work week. We've got strikes, the UDW auto strike is one of them. We've got this work from home thing that um, does contribute to the sticky inflation um, and has all kinds of knock on effects, which I talked about. And then just the duration and the length of inflation is really impacting people. It's starting to really come home to roost that we haven't seen inflation come off as quickly as the Fed wanted it to, partly because they didn't do their job or get off to the races, um, and it's still there. And then we have massive household debt from um, mortgages to auto loans. Most people are not getting approved for auto loans right now. um, And auto loans are massive and you just can't get financing. So we have a big problem in autos, even separate from this strike. Um, You have credit card debt that's going up and you have uh, delinquencies, which is also going up. And then you have student loans, which just began. Now the administration made it to where you're not gonna get penalized on your credit score if you don't pay off your student loan but you're still racking up the interest payments. So this is a problem and we're going to start seeing this. So consumers are weakening. We're seeing this from Amazon's Prime Day was not good for big items. Um Citi is talking about cracks forming with the consumers. We're definitely seeing that. We're seeing banks start to write off loans. We're seeing the homeowners association write letters to the Federal Reserve saying, "Stop raising interest rates cuz you're killing us." Now Partly why interest rates are rising so much and why you're seeing, if you you and I were to go get a mortgage today and we're going to put, you know, in Denver, a whopping $200,000 down on a million dollar house, we have to mortgage $800,000. It's probably not going to happen. We're probably not going to get approved even with an 800 something credit score because that $800,000, you have to mortgage that now at over 8% and your mortgage payments are way more than your principal. So, or your interest payments are way more than your principal. So things are completely out of whack. People think we still have a hot housing market. No, we just have a housing market that's not moving. And 40% of the Denver market was cash offers, 40% roughly, there's a lot of cash offers you should ask yourself why you're not seeing more cash offers right now. Why are are more houses not moving in cash offers? Because if I had a million dollars cash, I'd be coming in to places that I want to buy and I would be underbidding and I would say that million dollar house, let's do 750 cash, we're done. You're not seeing that because people are nervous and that's a reality and when people are nervous on the top end and people aren't spending on the bottom end, you're starting to look at recessionary territory. Um, Here's what inflation did It still, it didn't come down as much as expected. It was actually hotter today. And you have all this sticky stuff in shelter, in services. Um, This is chicken. Chicken prices, I just put this line out here. Chicken prices have come down a smidge, but they're so high from what they've previously been. The average consumer is getting annihilated, yes, inflation has come down a little bit, but chicken prices are still extremely high. The price of goods is still really, really high. And that's electricity prices. They just keep going up and up and up. And we produce 124 BCF day of natural gas, and gas prices are three bucks. So tell me why electricity prices are so high there's a lot of reasons why but part of it is because we've shoved so much damn renewables into the grid and excel is making us pay for them and that's because they are decommissioning the coal-fired power plants and they're making the consumers pay for that and i think the consumers should have a say in in what we're decommissioning and what we're not decommissioning and maybe putting more natural gas into the grid which they've also capped and these are really really serious constraints The data EIA also has on the non-reduction in CO2 emissions, but all the stuff that the utility companies have done is astounding because they've shoved all these renewables into the grid and it is not reducing CO2 emissions by, it's it's basically a fraction. Um, This is unemployment, basically showing you the unemployment lags, um, inflation and interest rates. So unemployment has to grow. We're going to have to lose jobs in order to cool off the economy. That green is oil prices. You have purple in unemployment. You have the Fed's fund rate, interest rates in black and you have um, orange as in inflation. And you can see how it trends. I just put this up here so you guys can see the 70s um, and the 80s, and you can see that inflation and interest rates are up, and that purple, the unemployment comes later. So everybody's wanting to know where the recession is. It's coming, unfortunately. Um, and we have this very tight labor market now, which is a problem for the Fed, and this tightness in the labor market is keeping things elevated, um, We just have, which is a problem. We, that's why you also are seeing people strike, because they can. Um, That federal surplus, that deficit, or federal surplus or deficit, that's our deficit right now. Um, We we are in a trend that's not good, and that's why our yields and our interest rates are kind of high. Probably why the Fed might not raise rates is because they might not have to, because the market has done it for them. Where you see the 10-year yield going up, which directly impacts 30-year mortgages, because people are getting anxious about our debt levels and the ability to repay it. Because we have a government, and I know that everybody says this, Republicans spend a lot, Democrats spend a lot. There is a difference in this last several years with COVID and with the crazy spending. We, we, we wholeheartedly have seen this administration and Congress use this kind of as an excuse to just throw everything in the kitchen sink. The Inflation Reduction Act is not an inflation reduction act. It is a massive spending bill with a ton of pork in it and a massive stuff on green tech. Guess what? Green tech doesn't actually make money yet and solar and wind are heavily subsidized. So what we're doing is we're subsidizing, 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 and we have all this stuff and that's our spending. That's how much it's gonna, has not come down. And this is where economists are starting to talk and speak out loud that this is a problem that's sticking with us and we have to address it. So no matter where you sit on either side of the aisle, debt is a problem and it's coming home to roost. And with these, with these wars in light and with the, our, this is our interest payments on our debt, um, which is a trillion dollars. It, it just—it's an unsustainable situation, and now when people need us and we have to be the leaders of the world, we—we um, we have to bring all this in context. We also have compensation up—that's blue—and we have productivity down in red. Not a recipe. Not where we want to be in the U.S. economy. Our average hourly work week is also down. The average hourly work week is 34 hours. I don't know about you folks, but. The last three days, I probably put in, You know, in two days, I can put in 30 hours pretty quick. Um, so 34 hours, I don't have a lot of sympathy. I truly don't have a lot of sympathy on the UEW auto strikes. When you're asking for pay for five days, you only wanna work four, um, but you have to produce a product. Um, and I'll get into why that's complicated. Again, that's labor productivity down. Um, so the UAW is asking for a 32-hour work week, but they won't pay for four. Um, somebody mentioned this on LinkedIn and said it sounds, told me it sounds like you are, are not for the employee wanting higher wages. I'm not a pro-union person, um, typically because it's not really good for business. And if you're, if you're, holding a, if you're a shareholder of any stock, any this happens, the stock goes down. So this is just a reality in economics. It doesn't tend to work well. When you raise wages, inflation goes up with it, and at the end of the day, the consumer is no better off. Um, So, the problem is, all this pay, they want restoration of all this pension and all this pay that they had before these auto companies went bankrupt in 2008. And then the government had to take them over. So you can't go back to a situation where you would make these companies bankrupt. The coverage on this by some experts has been just phenomenal. Because the reason this is actually happening is partly because the energy transition movement and the work to, to move these companies to make more electric vehicles. The problem is nobody's buying those electric vehicles right now. They're making all the money in their F-150s and in their big Suburbans. And that's where they're striking right now is to really hit these companies where it hurts. And um, Ford is losing $50,000 per electric F-150. That's a problem. They're losing a couple few billion dollars a year as a whole on their EVs, and they haven't even jump-started this. So, you know, there's some people that have done some excellent coverage on these Detroit auto strikes, and they basically said, we've never been here. We've never had the government subsidizing autos for electric vehicles, even when no one's buying them forcing people a transition by 2030 and also having these strikes that are ongoing because you don't need as many people to make an electric vehicle as you do a regular vehicle. And so all these com- people are asking for guaranteed pay, guaranteed jobs, and they'll get paid for community service even when the jobs go away. That's. It's an untenable situation. And I don't think we're gonna go there for a minute. If you're not buying these cars, there's gonna be a breaking point. You can see where all these are breaking points, but this is a really, really serious issue. And this is something that's been pushed through by the government um, and the government, when they pick winners and losers, it typically does not end up in your favor as a consumer. Um, that's mortgage debt, auto debt, it's a lot. That's your 30 year mortgage. That's your average mortgage size. Um, the problem is that, you know, everybody says this, If you have folks in the room and said, I remember the 70s, I remember the 80s, my parents say that too. But the average size of your mortgage in the 70s and 80s was a fraction of what it is today. So it's a completely different story in terms of the size, which we talked about. Um, So it's just different. And lastly, I know I'm way over time, um, US oil production, it's just killing it. Texas production is actually at a Texas production is at a record high, which I think is just phenomenal and awesome. We don't talk enough in this industry about the technical feats, which Darren Woods did talk about more yesterday, which I thought was awesome. Um, U.S. natural gas production, even with prices coming down, it hasn't come off a cliff those high prices last year were game changing for this industry because they did spur a lot of companies to just go crazy drilling everywhere it really spurred private companies to go after less enticing um, oil acreage because of that gas drive and that's a really big deal so if we see sustained four dollar mcf gas expect the exploration expect the privates to be moving into those places that are not so-called tier one acreage um, Texas record production, as I said, it's great. Um, you do have a lot of pressure on the industry. I know that because I'm like a service company, I work with the industry. This has been a really, really hard year. I can tell you that from every industry event I've been to, people are not getting as much money from the industry. The industry is kind of in this duck and cover mode. You have high oil prices, but they don't know what to do. And they're certainly not spending on Intel and education, which they need to be doing. But there's just so much government pressure and there's so much uncertainty. Um, and a lot of these smaller companies are, are really feeling it. Um, Exxon, well before this merger, talked directly about, came out publicly and talked about this ESG pressure and how this ESG pressure is impacting oil companies' ability to invest. This is why it's so serious to understand ESG on the investment side, because it's impacting the ability for companies to get stuff insured, from whether you're getting a truck to actually haul your oil, or you're um, you're just doing day-to-day business, or you just need more money to drill a well. ESG is impacting that and making it harder. They talked about net zero, they basically debunked that in a proxy filing saying that, uh, or in a filing, basically saying they can't even, they can't comply with it nor will anyone comply with it and it's ridiculous. Um, That's the purchase. So, you know, I mentioned this that Exxon was talked about and this merger was talked about in the context of the energy transition. It really was. I mean, Brian Sullivan on CNBC even said, oh, we're going to have a few more years of oil so I guess they need to do this. And I thought, Brian, you don't even believe that. Somebody must be like talking in your ear to say this. That's ridiculous. We're going to have more than 10 years, probably 30, probably 40. But the fact that he even said that was really annoying. Um, So Exxon produces about 350,000 just oil in the Permian. And Pioneer produced about 500,000 barrels a day. There are a lot of reasons why this did make, I mean, obviously from an acreage standpoint, it's great. But you know, Pioneer, those decline curves, if you look at them, they're not crushing it. They were they were kind of smashing. Exxon really did talk about yesterday of saying, they didn't say we're gonna uplift your decline curves, but that's basically what they were saying. Of saying, hey, we need, we're need we gonna bring our tech to this. And you know, Exxon does have the same power and they have the time. Um, so I think from an industry standpoint, this isn't great in terms of we're gonna lose some jobs. It's definitely gonna impact the service sector. and. Um, you know Consolidation in Colorado, I'm not a really big fan of because I, I think it really hurts Colorado and it, I haven't seen Colorado get better from a regulatory standpoint as we've seen the consolidation. Um, in fact, it makes Colorado more quiet. The industry is more quiet. I don't like it. This is a little bit different. Um, lots of repercussions. Um, public shale reinvestment rate, it's coming back up but you know, you just haven't seen public companies put the drill bit back in the ground because they've been so afraid and they really need to and they've missed out on very high oil prices. And you see so much of that orange, that's dividends and share buybacks. Uh, we can talk about that offline. I'm pretty a little bit critical of, of excessive share buybacks uh, for It can't be the only story. I think dividends work, but if you're telling the street, you need to buy back shares because your company's not appropriately valued, you need to be working on getting your company appropriately valued. And part of that is telling the story of oil and gas. And Exxon and Pioneer did a better job yesterday of telling that story. Um, That's California, Alaskan, and Colorado production stacked up. It's less than two counties and it's less than New Mexico production in total. That is uh, what regulatory and anti-oil and gas does for your state and this is where the money goes, the investment goes. So this is really, really serious, something Colorado needs to take seriously. I, I love the DJ. I love the rock. I just think that we need to be more vocal and we need to push back and we need to educate. Permian oil gas production, absolutely crushing it. Um, it's just phenomenal, amazing story. It's one of the best oil plays in the entire world. Um, that's Delaware, a lot. Delaware and Midland breakout. We have a ton of natural gas, an absolute ton that's driving this oil production up. We can learn about that later. Average lateral length is well over 10,500 feet right now, and ver- another very impressive story. In the Midland, we're seeing about 12,000 foot laterals. That's an impressive story because you know five years ago, people just weren't here. They didn't think we could do it, and now we're drilling through mile-long laterals um, on, on an absolute regular, and it's working. And the real story, I'm sorry, that's a recount in the US, public, private, public in orange, private in purple. Permian, you can see where that's flipped. Um, the privates really led everything Um, that stacked completions we can skip over this we can talk about that later Um, the growth has been in completions the offset from the publics has really been the the uh, private companies this gap in completions by public companies is this ESG investor pressure. This is really serious, and this is why you haven't seen plays like in the Rockies go crazy like the Permian. Um, That's US public company completions. That's US private companies. You can really see that, how well they responded. And that is what the market and ESG pressure, if you're private, you have more flexibility. Um, US rigs, you can see that same story where the public companies are really concentrated, and the purple guys, the private rigs, are you know they're they're willing to step out. It's working for a lot of these guys, especially in these oil prices. That's ducks. So these are just holes that have been poked into the ground. Let's not argue about what a duck is. Happy to do that over drinks. Um, But those are holes poked into the ground. And that tells you last year, we had a lot of folks, a lot of private companies poking a lot of holes in the ground that are absolutely not deemed tier one acreage. Um, And I would say that a lot of those guys would say, we're gonna make money with that. And I would say they will. So we have lots of reiterations in the business of you know, what happens with prices, where the privates go, when you have pressure on publics, what happens with privates. Um, And just because if we see a consolidation, if we start seeing more consolidation, it does not mean the privates are down and out. It means the privates are gonna be pushed into that, you know, tier three, tier four acreage. They will de-risk it and we will continue onward. Um, As you can tell, I'm really bullish about the rock. That's all plays, that's every every oil play, normalized productivity decline curve. And you can see that dotted line is 2022. If everybody was stepping out and if the acreage was crap, and if all those longer laterals weren't performing, you would have seen that smashed, and we absolutely did not. So, with that, um, I know I went over and I apologize. I'm going to close. We have
1: just one or two questions. One questions. Oh, we do have five or ten. So, maybe more than one or two questions. So, we got a question right over here. Yes, sir. What is your name? Yeah. Repeat do
0: uh, question asked here. And, just, I mean, yeah, take a drink. I mean,
1: uh, uh, take some time. Uh, uh, that was quite a bit of information, and just thank you for being here today. So, kind of, maybe, kind of, you know, summarize a lot of this data. Uh, what's your short term outlook, and what's your long term outlook? And I'll put it as simple as bullish or not bullish, you know, on, uh, I guess, uh, Natural resource, or maybe oil prices, or natural gas prices, in our industry. You know, I guess also I know we have renewables here as well, but I'm more focused on the higher carbon intensive industries.
0: Bullish or not? Um, Long term, very bullish in terms of not probably as in the same way a lot of folks in the industry are in terms of we just have the super cycle and it's going to go to 150 barrels, the $150. No, nor do I think we're necessarily going to, you know, we may not go to 120 million barrels a day, but I think uh, we're not going to decline in demand. Um, We would, you know, when we talk about peak demand, yeah, we could peak. It's it's less important about targeting that peak of knowing when will it peak and how long we'll stay there. And the ability, you know, we think a peak like a sunset and it coming down, it's it's not going to come down. It's just going to stay there. And so as the industry, we have to think about that. So I'm very bullish about the long term But more bullish in terms of i also think that lower prices are way better for everyone they're better for the economy they're better for the society they're better for the stability in oil prices so we get really excited about really high oil prices you can see this year it hasn't really you know proven out to be a really good thing and and we're seeing that demand come off in the short term I am pretty nervous about these high prices with a, a weakened consumer. Um, and I'm pretty anxious about that. I think we have so much volatility in the global economy. Um, just before that, before this this war, now we have this war and now we have this angst and we don't have enough people um, that do, we have people that do what I do, but you need more people, you need more voices out there and you need uh, companies need to be taking that and internalizing it. And so I think the next few years are, or could be rocky. Doesn't mean oil no price won't be up, but I'm not so bullish about like, I, I'm not bullish that the industry is going to do a great job in articulating and understanding the next few years and coming out rosy on the other side. I think that uh, we need to do a better job of that. Great question. Thank you.
1: Anybody got a hand up? This is
0: free consulting, people. Seriously. We have a, we have a question.
1: Tyson? Again, what is Tyson's As you look at these global issues and these global prices, and you look at where we're at with the financial looming financial crisis that we're kind of going through that's headed in in an even worse direction, what do you think are going to be, from a political standpoint, do you see major sea changes happening in public opinion because of? The, the effect of this is it going to be after all of these things happen or do you think with enough information people will actually make a change before you?
0: um it's a great question and a lot of folks are often afraid to talk about politics and unfortunately politics is, is really intertwined with this um, with everything so it's, it's a good question I would say you know if you look at how the cities have voted if you look at like a place like Denver um, didn't go the way actually it probably should have gone given the le- levels of crime and stuff um, and the homelessness so Denver is not a good is kind of an outlier but a lot of major cities have been uh, Chicago too and then you but then you start talking to people you know and I say this anecdotally but seriously every single Uber driver I talked to I didn't talk to the one this morning because I was thinking too much, but um, I talk to most of my Uber drivers. They ask what I do. And and um, almost all of them, we start talking about the market. We start talking about the economy. We start talking about their business. And I always come away realizing this country's not nearly as divided. Um, as the media seems to portray, we are. Um, and they always want to listen to the podcast. They all become podcast listeners. And I'm just like, wow, the podcast is called Petroners, and we're driving a Tesla. Um, and you just told me you're very anti oil and gas, but they want to listen. Um, and so I don't, you know, I think that there's something going on there that I, I realize. And then we actually see it. There's been some recent polls, and I, I, I don't want to get into, you know, Biden versus Trump, and I know that makes people uncomfortable, but something as simple as, uh, you know, the anxiety that people have, this, the big anti Trump movement. There was an NBC poll that came out recently and I do think it's telling for the economy um, and it says that there were a lot of folks that were asked you know you know they were basically indifferent either anti-Trump or indifferent on Trump and they said basically now they would have taken their bets on Trump because of their position in their their how they feel about the economy at the end of the day voting does come back to how do you feel about the economy how are you doing and I think the UAW auto strikes are really interesting because you know CNBC did some coverage on that and they showed it's a pretty big mix you have you know pro-Biden folks out there Biden went to the didn't go to directly the picket lines but he was there he was in that picture and you have all these Trump supporters as well These people are protesting because their inflation is high and their cost of living is really high. And they say this, that we have real inflation. Whether or not they're, whoever they're blaming, they're saying this economy is not working for me and we have really high inflation. So, um, and that inflation is increasingly, and it's taking kind of a while to get there, it is increasingly now being blamed on this administration. And I think that is being compounded with, oh, we also have, you know, really, I mean, our theft in Target, our theft in Home Depot, our theft in all these places is really high. That there's some correlations to that with some of the city politics and the lack of prosecution for theft. Um, but this is really starting to weigh, uh, like the business climate and the economy, and that stuff is starting to weigh on businesses. So I do think we're starting to see some of that. But we, you know, it ultimately ends ends up in the polls. And I think in terms of geopolitics. You know, we just have such poor coverage every day on a day to day basis on TV that it's hard for probably the average American to wrap their arms around it. I think the average person is a lot smarter than the media wants them to be. I think we need to spend time, you know, talking to people more. Even if, you know, you disagree with me, I am completely okay with that. But I am happy to have that conversation, and we just don't have enough of that.
1: Hands up if you have a question. I do have a question for you. You Eventually, you have a podcast. Do you maybe really slowly
0: tell us how to find it? Absolutely. So you can Google Petronerds, because um, it's called the Petronerds Podcast. And it's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's on all your platforms. Um, it's on YouTube. So there's a Petronerds YouTube channel, so you can watch it. Um, and the latest, I just, uh, I'll be dropping ahead Tad True um, with true companies, uh, super—it's aw- his first podcast he's ever done, so it's really, really good. It's super frank, candid discussion. It is just awesome um, talking from COVID and prices and midstream. I just Chris Atherton was this week with Energy Net, um, and the feedback has been you know truly phenomenal. So it's on iTunes. You can go on my website. Also reach out to me. You can—I have cards up here. You can reach out to me directly. Um, you know, if you love what I do, if you love this business, one you should—if you like this intel and you thought it was going too fast, you should probably become a client. Um, but if you want to support it, you support the podcast and you really should be a sponsor because if you like this mug, super cool, I know this, um, you could get your logo on one side, my logo on the other, you know, just a just the thought there. So, yeah.
1: So, so we, if we Google Trisha Curtis, Petroverse, we'll find your podcast. You
0: absolutely will. And a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> Thank you guys.